Management presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about the Riddle House and mob mentality. Welcome everyone to episode 27 of First Years. We are starting Goblet of Fire today, which I am so excited about, and I know I say that about every book that we start, but this is actually my favorite book when I read the series for the first time, and so far continues to be. We'll see if that changes as I continue to reread for this podcast. I said that Prisoner of Azkaban has some of the most important chapters in the entire series. But I feel like this is the book that really ramps up the overall plot that we'll see. Like we've seen with the first three books, things are starting to get darker, right? Harry isn't a preteen anymore. He's a full-blown teenager now. So we're already in a place where Harry is older and these books start to stop being childlike and more adult and serious. And we see that right away with the first chapter that starts with a murder. For the first time, we don't start with Harry, but we get a background of a part of Voldemort's life. If you'll remember from Chamber of Secrets, we learn that Voldemort's real name is Tom Marvolo Riddle. So let's put a pin in the opening image for just a second. It says, quote, It stood on a hill overlooking the village. Some of its windows boarded, tiles missing from its roof, and ivy spreading unchecked over its face. Once a fine-looking manor, and easily the largest and grandest building for miles around, the Riddle House was now damp, derelict, and unoccupied. Unquote. So hold on to that for just a second. The opening story we get here is that one day... All of the riddles in the house were found dead, although no one could really figure out why they died. Although it sounds like no one really cared about the riddles. They didn't seem very nice. They were more intrigued in the who did it, right? And we get this really interesting scene of everyone talking in the pub about who could have done it. And they find out that Frank, the gardener, was arrested. And we see a deterioration of the conversation in the scene, of their opinion of Frank. The first line that people say about Frank is, Frank, never. Then it turns into, he was odd, unfriendly. And even though someone jumps in to defend him as to why he's someone who keeps to himself, someone brings up the fact that the gardener has a spare key and so it had to have been him. My question is, If everybody knows that that key is there, why did it have to be him? Couldn't someone have easily just broken into Frank's place and stolen the key and then gotten into the Riddle House? The logic doesn't quite make sense, but that's the whole point of what we see here. 
Then we get descriptions of, quote, he had a nasty look about him, or wouldn't like to get on the wrong side of him, or horrible temper, unquote. And then we get the line, quote, by the following morning, hardly anyone in Little Hangleton doubted that Frank Bryce had killed the Riddles, unquote. We have a group of people who knew Frank personally, who go from saying he could never do something like this to being absolutely convinced that it couldn't have been anybody else. What we see here is herd mentality, or mob mentality. There's been a lot of studies on how groups function and how that can change someone's behavior from what it would be if they were on their own, which is crowd psychology or mob psychology. So I looked into this. Studying this began with an interest of the mobs that acted against the last king of France, Louis-Philippe, in 1848. People were trying to understand exactly how a group of people gets set off. This mentality is defined as learning, quote, how people can be influenced by their peers to adopt certain behaviors on a largely emotional rather than rational basis. When individuals are affected by mob mentality, they may make different decisions than they would have individually, unquote. The idea of the group mind was introduced by Gabriel Tard and Gustave Le Bon. These two were French social psychologists during the 19th century. Le Bon was six during the 1848 rebellion in France, and he said that when in a group, people started to show new characteristics that were different from who they were as an individual. The individuality and the single personality disappears and all of the ideas and feelings are combined into a single collective mind. And he broke it down into three stages, submergence, contagion, and suggestion. Submergence is when the people in the group lose their individuality and personal responsibility. Contagion is when everyone in the group starts to follow the ideas and the emotions of the group instead of their own. And suggestion is when people in the group become susceptible to any idea or emotion that happens to occur within the group. Freud also had a theory on this occurrence and says that a person's moral center is displaced by the crowd and then it's replaced by the charismatic crowd leader which I think is really scary to think about because I think we've seen a lot of this recently where people no longer think for themselves and instead follow a charismatic leader that they think holds all the answers. There's also de-individuation theory, convergence theory, and emergent norm theory. So de-individuation theory, try saying that five times fast, says that the The factors in crowds, like anonymity, unity with a group, and other factors can actually weaken somebody's resolve and suppress emotions like guilt or shame. This decreases rational forethought and separates someone from normal social behavior. Convergence theory points out that the behavior of a crowd isn't from the crowd itself, but from the gathering of people with like minds. And so their actions and thoughts and behaviors are backed up, supported, 
and intensified by being around each other. Emergent norm theory declares that crowds don't start out unified, but as people start to suggest action, people begin to fall in line to follow along, which decides the norms of the crowd itself. Other studies have put forth the idea that there are two principles for groups. One being that peaceful protesters may act out under specific conditions, like when a barricade is broken or there's an altercation with police. The second is that if the group or protests have internal organization and social structure, that spontaneous violence is actually less likely, which we see uh, when we look at the civil rights movements. Martin Luther King Jr. actually trained people in how to respond to police behavior, what to say when arrested, to make sure people stayed safe, and the goal of the protest itself was at the forefront of everybody's mind and didn't dissolve. Now, if you're thinking that you wouldn't follow a crowd you were in, I have some news for you. Apparently, only a quarter of people would be able to stand up and not participate. That means 75% of people would get swept up in the action and join in. That's because that's how we're wired. We have social norms we follow in daily life. It tells us how to behave around other people. When it comes to doing something that's different from social norms, your prefrontal cortex goes, hey, wait, that's not what everybody else is doing. We probably shouldn't do that. It's part of our evolution, where back in the day, going against the grain could have been a death sentence. We pick up on cues from those around us on how to behave in the world. That's how we learn how to fit in and not cause disturbances. And here's the really crazy part. We do this even when we're purchasing something. How many of you look at how many reviews a product has, how many stars people gave it, and then read the reviews before you click purchase? You're relying on others' experiences with the product to prove whether or not it's a worthy investment. And that's not a bad thing. It's essential because we don't have the time or the money to personally try every single product in order to make the right decision. So we put our trust in other people in order to make the best decision possible. We even see this in finance, where investors can get caught up in the fear of others and jump in with everybody else who are frantically moving stocks around, which causes bubbles and ultimately crashes. We like to follow what other people are doing. And so behavior finance experts actually look at this herd behavior in order to help out and see when future economic crises may come into being. So it's part of our wiring to go with the crowd. I know I've been in situations where I'm working with a group on a project and I have an idea, but everyone seems to like the previous one. So I just go with the flow and I don't even suggest it. And I'm sure you can think of another situation that you've been in that's very similar. And that's really what we see here in this scene in the pub where everyone is discussing Frank. I'm sure the alcohol doesn't help. It never does. But as the night goes on and more and more people start to say bad things about Frank, everyone else joins in and becomes convinced. Whether that's what they truly thought at the time or not, they were influenced by being in the crowd and the like mind of the group. 
but of course, there's no real evidence that Frank was the murderer. There's no murder weapon, there's no motive, and Frank swears that he saw a teenage boy by the house on the same day, although no one else seems to have seen him. So they have to let Frank go, and he stays on the grounds taking care of the gardens for the next however many years. Frank seems to remain very loyal to the house. He tends to the gardens, he kicks the boys out that want to break into the house, but still the house goes into disrepair. And ultimately he meets his end when facing Voldemort in that house. We get a lot of details in the second half of this chapter. We learn that Wormtail, Peter Pettigrew, has reunited with Voldemort. Voldemort seems very weak. Let me point out that this is the first time that we have seen Voldemort in person since book one, which is kind of crazy to think about. We learn that he has a plan, but it has to wait until after the Quidditch Cup, and the plan involves Harry Potter, and he has a servant at Hogwarts. What do we think that's about? Poor Frank ends up getting killed by Voldemort, but before he dies, when Voldemort turns to face him, he screams. So whatever form Voldemort is in, it's horrible. Even Voldemort says that Wormtail hates to touch him and take care of him. And when we think about Frank being loyal to the house and this concept of loyalty, which I'm going to bring up, there's an overlap between Frank and Wormtail. Both are loyal to the riddles in very different ways. Frank is loyal to their house, while Wormtail is loyal to Voldemort, although probably against his will, it seems. And where does this loyalty get them? People judge Frank for sticking around the house after the murders of the riddles, and his loyalty is ultimately what brings him up into the house to discover Voldemort and leads to his death. And Wormtail, who seems to regret finding Voldemort again, who wasn't loyal to his friends, but is loyal to this man who treats him this way, who threatens him, who calls him stupid. What does that say about loyalty? Is this loyalty to a lost cause? Is that the point of what we're seeing here? Both of these men seem to be loyal to something, but have gotten the short end of the stick. We spoke last book about the systems in place and how they failed, and I want to go back to this image of the Riddle House, the one I told you to put a pin in earlier, that we read on the first page. How does this house set the tone of the book? Things start to fall apart, and no one seems to care except for one person. Where things start to fall apart because people stop caring. Is this loyalty to something that you can't save? Or is it a rebirth? Does this house represent how Voldemort is currently doing? Because he may be weak and the house may be a wreck, but it's still around. He's still around. And maybe that's the most important thing of all. The fact that it's still there. One topic that I need to touch on because I know I was very confused by it when I first read it and didn't know what it meant until someone else explained it to me. Milking snakes. Voldemort says that Nagini is going to have to be milked because he's going to need feeding during the night. So milking snakes refers to extracting their venom. So Voldemort is drinking Nagini's venom to stay alive. 
we don't know what type of snake Nagini is, and I don't know how her venom is keeping him alive. Because it seems counterintuitive, right? But actually, what's interesting here is that venom is used a lot in medicine. For example, blood pressure medication. In the 1970s, researchers found that people who were bitten by the Brazilian pit viper had their blood pressure completely crash. So they modified it in order to use it in medicine to help those who need medication for their blood pressure. This medication falls into a class called ACE inhibitors, which many in this group contain modified snake toxins, which is pretty cool because some venoms help blood clot, some proteins in venom are used to treat cancer, reduce pain, treat heart attacks, strokes, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's disease. What's important to note though, is that the venom itself doesn't heal. The components that scientists can isolate do. So is Pettigrew modifying the venom with magic or just giving it to Voldemort as is? We know Voldemort can talk to snakes, but we don't know that that gives him an ability to just drink snake venom and not be affected by the poison. So that's really interesting to think about. I want to hear your theories on this for sure. And also, what do we think his plan is? Who at Hogwarts do we think is his loyal servant? And what do you think the Riddle House represents to us for the rest of this book? Let us know at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com or tag us on social media at firstyearspod on Instagram or Twitter. I am so happy to be back after the holidays. I hope you guys had a wonderful holiday and a happy new year. We are starting our third house cup tournament. So get ready to win those house points and let me know how excited you are about Goblet of Fire. And I will see you guys next time. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first years podcast. That's Sarah with an H and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have and we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming.